Darmstadt on Air number 24. Every separation is a link. Kate Mollison and Cassandra Miller in conversation. Hi, we're back again with a new season of the Darmstadt on Air podcast. My name is Silvia Freidank. I'm working for the Darmstadt Summer Course and I'm glad to make a little introduction to this podcast. Until our next festival, happening from August 5 to August 19, there will be new episodes at irregular intervals. As in the last season, each episode will be an interview that is hosted by one of our summer course tutors. They choose a person to talk to, and uh, this is new in this season. They will base their conversation on a particular piece of music, a book, a piece of art, a performance, recording or something like that. With the new episode, we are picking up where we left off, with Kate Mollison. Kate hosted the last episode with Rebecca Saunders, and now she interviewed another composer, Cassandra Miller. Taking her viola concerto as a starting point, the two talk about Cassandra Miller's compositional method that is very special in the way she deals with existing material, transcribes it, transforms it, and makes it her own. Cassandra Miller was born in Canada, but now lives and works in London. Music journalist and BBC presenter Kate Mollison met her in Edinburgh on the 2nd of May on the occasion of the UK premiere of the Viola Concerto with Lawrence Power as a soloist and the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. Even if you haven't had the chance to listen to the piece in concert or on the radio, Cassandra's compositional method applies to many of her pieces too. Enjoy listening. Cassandra Miller, it's an absolute joy to have you sitting here in my living room on uh, on my sofa in Edinburgh. And uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this. And um, it's... It feels like a, a, a really pertinent day to be having this conversation because actually this morning we just um, were witnessing the second performance being uh, rehearsed of your viola concerto and to be in the room with that music was an amazing privilege for me. How did it feel for you? Um, well, it was wonderfully easy because it was there's something about a premiere that is so stressful and this is the second performance so it's wonderful to arrive at a rehearsal and just have a very practical role and not be so um, worried about all the unknowns of a piece. Um, so it was really just a actual pleasure to hear it and to have the role of just being supportive of the conductor and yeah. the soloist and wander around and see how, how it sounds throughout the hall and whatnot. So it was really, it was actually just kind of an easy pleasure and lovely to um, meet John Storgards for the first time. And yeah. So John was conducting, we should say, this was Lawrence Power playing the viola concerto with the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, who's co-commissioners of this piece, but it was premiered, what, a month ago? About Brussels? a m month and a half ago by Brussels Philharmonic, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And unsurprisingly for anybody who's heard the piece, the premiere caused quite a stir. Uh, and I think people around the world found themselves scrolling through a Flemish radio broadcast in order to find the start of your piece. But this um, this piece has stopped so many people in their tracks um, because you create a sound, you, you, you create a sound and a sort of catharsis 
that I find impossible to resist and I find myself listening to it on repeat five, ten times. I just didn't want to leave this world of sound that you'd created for us. And so I hope in this conversation we can unpick a little bit how you do that um, and what your resources are. I think that's what I'm interested in, maybe especially, is what you were drawn to as your starting material and then how you go about transforming it in this way that feels so meaningful and so respectful um, but at the same time so utterly yours and I find that intersection between um, especially folk sources because you're starting with a, a folk fiddler here into something that is that has genuine integrity while respecting the integrity of the original is something that doesn't always happen <laughs> and which you've managed to do in a way that is just so original and wonderful so um, maybe, I, maybe we start with the name of the piece um, which immediately, to my mind, plunges us into the atmosphere of it, which is from Simone Weil. Um, yeah, talk about that. Um, I Cannot Love Without Trembling is the name of the concerto. And um, this is a quote where um, it's um, in just a letter of correspondence um, where Simone Weil says that the it's something like, Human life is so fragile and the world is full of so many dangers that I cannot love without trembling. It's a very beautiful quote. And um, titles for me often come after. Um, well, either they come right at the beginning before the music or um, after the, de the deadline. And um, in this case, it was after the deadline. And um, it was sort of perfect for personal reasons because I, I have um, a good friend, Matt Marble, who... Um, uh, was uh, we have this sort of shared love of the the Greek music that it's based on, uh, and also my friend Matt introduced me to the writings of Simone Weil, um, which I'd heard about but never read. And um, Weil talks about the um, how every separation is a link. So the the idea that um, actually it's a Greek term that she uses for it, um, but it's the, the it's um, the idea that there's for example, you have two prisoners and they're separated by a wall and the wall is the separation, but they can communicate by tapping on it. So the idea that the thing that separates is also the link. And um, so it's sort of, um, it's a very simple concept, but also becomes sort of complex in how she uses it. And I can't really summarize, but um, but the the idea, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff that you can sort of relate back to that. And I thought it was sort of perfect for this concerto because the source material that it's based on is uh, part of this tradition that has to, a lot to do with um, grieving or mourning, um, but it's also very celebratory. And, uh, for example, it's, it's based on this uh, form called a miroloi, and it's... Um, uh, uh, which is, it comes from the funeral chants of the, the women of the region, but it's a celebration song. So you, you play it at the beginning or end of festivals or both, um, and it's a way to acknowledge the people that aren't there at the festival, but it's, it is sort of celebratory as well. And um, so it's interesting, this idea that there's something missing. And uh, so it can be um, people who are not with us anymore because they've died, or it can be people who are far away. So there's a lot of sort of, homesickness in the idea and um, also very interesting that this particular uh, musician that was recorded that I, 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 I used as source material, uh, his name is Alexis Zumbas, a violinist from uh, the north of Greece, from the Epirus Mountains, um, that um, he went to North America and made these recordings in New York 
and so they're full of homesickness and they sort of represent a community in New York that was full of homesickness and uh, even but even before he ended up in New York it's a song form that's about homesickness and and uh, but there's something beautiful about um, connecting uh, through through a sort of mutual shared sense of loss or or of distance or it's a shared sense of distance basically is what it is so um i thought that the, um, even though i'm no philosopher that the this lovely any sort of reference to simone Weil was was sort of appropriate somehow mm. and then um what about uh, the fragile yeah, the heart mm. of that quote human existence is so fragile yeah. a thing and exposed to such dangers that i cannot love without trembling um why is fragility something, I mean, something that seems to be there in so much of your music, um, taking us to places that are fragile and vulnerable and from where so much strength seems to emerge? Why are you drawn to fragility? I'm glad you said the thing about, thing about strength at the end because um, as you were saying that, I was going to say that I, I think there's something robust about the fact that human life is fragile. Like, we, we kind of... All right, I'm going to wax poetic here, and maybe maybe I, I'm no philosopher, but um, there's something about um, our own mortality that we... Um, when we ignore the fact that mortality exists, we actually are more fragile, but we don't know it. And um, there's something very robust about saying, um, I'm going to die, there's a lot of sadness in the world, I'm distant from my loved ones, you know, and, and to admit that, there's something strong about that and and you and I've talked before about um the sort of you know how I'm always drawn to like the warble in the voice or the you know and 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 I think that also there's something robust about that where if something is revealed about somebody if somebody allows themselves to be revealed by a crack in their voice then they are presenting something robust about themselves somehow I don't know yeah um yeah and translating it to the concerto and we're skipping ahead a bit, and I do want to come back to Alexis Simbas, mm-hmm. and I will in a moment, but just on the on the line of thoughts, um, of robustness, fragility and robustness, <laughs> because actually when I first heard that you were writing a concerto for Lawrence Power, the viola player, mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if anybody knows the sound that he makes, it's, I think, the most robust, <laughs> hugest, yeah. most sonorous, resonant, most voluptuous, enormous, beautiful viola sound that I have ever heard in my life. Yeah. And you, you kind of go there to the max with his sound it's absolutely yeah. incredible and you know being there with him in the rehearsal room this morning I just felt like I was inside this enormous viola it's absolutely incredible mm-hmm. and I couldn't initially put together the, the fragility that I that I n- know that you're drawn to and 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 yet it made complete sense mm-hmm. with the warmth and the resilience Hmm. that you tap into as well and you have these incredible trumpet fanfares which again I recognise from duet mm-hmm. from yeah. for cello and orchestra and there's, there's something so um, so uh, jubilant so hmm. so um, strong so strong hmm. that comes out of this fragility so yeah I, 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 I hear what you're saying um, Alexis Zumbas I, I thought maybe we could hear actually because I'd love to, to hear in real, real time what it is that you love about this recording and yeah. his playing and and then how you work with it so so this is it i think i'm, I'm right saying this is this is the the tune here we go at alexis Zumbas. from what year is this i think the recording is around 1920 okay <laughs>
kick over this, but we could, yeah, we could sit and listen to Alexis in this for the rest of the afternoon. Um, that is uh, available on, a, on an album called A Lament for Epirus, um, featuring his fiddle playing. But it's interesting watching you listen to that, Cassandra, <laughs> because you're gesturing with your hands along with the phrases as if, as if he's talking almost as if the points he's making are conversational oh yeah that's nice that you said that yeah I was sort of for the people and not in the room I was sort of conducting it to you but yeah, yeah I was like yeah it was sort of like yeah he's making this sort of rhetorical thing somehow there's a, I, I it's funny because when I first started listening to the piece just because of how I listen I just heard it as sort of like a, a long category of of things and I and I know I knew I was being carried away but the fun thing about when you when you then transcribe something is that it it, it becomes really um, uh, you really get to know every single detail of it. So it was quite fun actually listening to it now, having just come out of the rehearsal this morning. Because um, uh, you know what I found when I transcribed it is like oh it's just it's like a little flourish up and then and then a gliss down and sometimes the gliss down is like is just a single note glistening and sometimes it's like the the bow goes back and forth and like leans on every like every step on you know um, semitone or smaller on the on the way down and um it's just that over and over and over again and um so it basically has two elements it has this fall down and then a kind of flicker flickering musical flickering musicality that sort of brings it up again and then down and then up again it's yeah it's um and yeah it's almost conversational or rhetorical or, or something yeah. yeah so I guess I'm curious what the process of transformation is then you're, you're I can hear the elements that you're homing in on in this guy's playing Alexis Simbus from the mm. 20s mm. what then is the relationship between Lawrence mm. or, or what you're writing for Lawrence and him and to what degree what, what how do you feel about the ethics of taking a folk players language and personality and essence and folding it into the music that you were then putting on the stage in a concert hall right yeah well i mean um i'm i'm relieved that you opened this interview by saying that you felt it was respectful both to that it was somehow myself but also respectful to the original and i I'm I'm glad that it comes across that, that way because it is something that's always fraught like that decision is fraught and sometimes I I go back to pieces that I've written not even that long ago and I think well is that a bit close to the line and and I like what in in what way um, well this is the first example that comes to mind but it's not not necessarily uh, the best example but um when I wrote Philip the Wanderer the program notes originally said that it was a transcription it came from a transcription of a um anonymous uh uh Mbira player um from Mozambique and it was like two years later and I'm like dude what didn't you just look at the program notes like the guy's not an honest this is like somebody's work and so I realized I had just totally phased that and like the music is so different from the original in that context so it didn't it doesn't sound like I'm exoticizing something but um but the program notes were like a little bit of a a pointer to like oh, why was I... A little bit of a wake-up call of, like, why was I not being more careful about that? And so... Um, and I I do try to sort of constantly learn a little bit about what, you know, what does it... What are the problems with cultural appropriation? And and, um, 
and I certainly don't know all of them, but I mean, the basic one is who's doing the work and who's getting paid. So if some, if I'm getting paid for somebody else's work in any way, that's a problem. So, but then there's a lot of things that are more subtle than that. And, um, one of the things that, um, white people, including myself can get very wrong is if they, um, um, generalize. So there's something about exoticization, which is saying, oh, all Chinese music sounds like pentatonic scale. And it's like, so I try to get away from that by being as specific as possible. So I'm talking about a specific person, a specific recording, a specific gesture of that recording. And I'm not, I'm not trying to um, talk about the style of playing as a genre. I'm trying to talk about that person's gesture, that person's physicality. So um, that's my interest. And I hope that that's not too problematic, but then I still have to think about like how to present it. And, um, with this piece, um, there's sort of, well, there's two main sections to the piece. There's a big cadenza, which has a different, there's a different discussion of it, but the, um, the earlier part of the piece that is the bulk of it, um, I really transformed the material a lot from the original, uh, by, um, doing this process called automatic singing that we've talked about before. And I it's, think for the, for, for the benefit of mm, listening who maybe aren't familiar with what mm, you're doing there, can you give a, a brief introduction? Yeah, so uh, basically what I do is I... I um, it's hard to be brief about it, but I... Uh, it's not a brief process. It's something... It became no. something that I now call sort of a method because it got a bit developed while I was doing a PhD. And, you know, when you start to talk about something a lot, it, make, it sort of con- becomes concrete. Mm-hmm. And I also... I still, I use it all the time. It's like become a tool. So, um, and um, what it is basically is that the essential process is I'm listening to something in headphones. I've got my eyes closed. I've got the headphones on loud enough that I can't really hear my myself. And um, often I'm meditating at the same time. I'm to do like a, usually I do a body scan meditation because it takes a lot of concentration for me. I'm not very good at it. And that um, has a, a lot to do with the process but the main thing it does is actually distract me from trying to have a specific outcome so the point of this is that I let my body respond to what I'm listening to while I am breathing out while engaging my vocal cords so like sound comes out it sounds like I'm singing along to what's happening um but it's very it's a physical thing as opposed to trying to get a really specific sonic result from my voice and I'm an un completely untrained singer so it's I have really no control over my voice even when I want to uh so um so but that's just the first step so I'll record my voice singing along and sort of mimicking is what I call it so I'll record my voice mimicking and I'll take that recording and I will um make a canon from it so I'll make several layers so let's say let's say I make six layers of something and each layer starts say five seconds later so it's a, a canon at the, you know, six voice canon at the five seconds. If, I guess if we would call it that if we were um, music students. So, uh, but, um, uh, and then I put that in my headphones, similarly loud, and I do the meditating thing again, and I sing along to that. And because you can't sing along to six things happening at once, that already transforms it because I'm only going to be singing along usually to the highest point of the melody, but, um, uh, uh, it, it can be very different depending on how I'm meditating, how I'm feeling that day, what I have for breakfast, mm-hmm. etc. And um, and it also 
Well, I'll come back. Uh, there's another point there that I'm going to come back to about it, trying to find the essence of a melody. But um, um, basically, it transforms it quite far from the original. Mm-hmm. They keep there. You end up often with a very similar tonality. Um, you end up often with something that really resembles the the, the original, but is sort of somehow smoothed out or somehow there's extra warble from the fact that I can't control my voice um, and often is quite repetitive because of this thing I do with canons. So it really, it takes it into something else. So um, like philosophically, I'm not presenting the original. I'm presenting what, how my body reacts as a listener to this thing I've heard. And so I'm presenting my body's reaction. I'm presenting my my personhood as it reacts to the listening. So I'm hoping that's good enough to be respectful. Mm-hmm. And I imagine one day I'll come across a situation when it's not good enough and I'll have to really think about it and change that's what I'm doing. Yeah. What happens to the original purpose of the music then? You, you mentioned that this tune originally did have quite a specific purpose, which mm. was, as I understand... To do with mourning, lamenting, yeah, yeah. Um, and then mediated through your response, what happens to that yeah. purpose? Oh, there's probably a lot of answers there actually simultaneously. Um, I'll answer first by saying the thing that I almost said when I was talking about the process, which is that, um, um, which is that um, one of my reasons for wanting to do automatic singing at, at the beginning was that I wanted a way to sort of study like the essence of a melody like the suchness of it and the and uh, yeah <laughs> that's a really nice word yeah and what i mean what and it's it's something that's like i mean it's like so simple in the sense that like if you do this automatic singing process uh with something that has for example a lot of glissing down mm-hmm. you're going to end up with something that's about glissing down mm-hmm. so it's a way to figure out like what is this melody about and how do i engage with what it's about in a sort of essence way i, I mean i'm thinking immediately of um um, the songs, the songs about singing, and the, and you hope you you know you zooming in right into uh, Maria Callas right. lips, right? Yeah. Like the whole piece is made out of that one gesture. Yeah, and you get right inside the the suchness of it. Yeah, and so it's about like the bel canto bel song canto. that you're talking yeah. about. Um, uh, that's about Maria Callas, and it's and it gets to the suchness of the melody in a few different ways. First of all, I'm like zooming in on the vibrato. Mm-hmm. So it's a Maria Callas vibrato and it's this sort of... But then I'm also focusing on, on this sort of gliss down that that um, is part of the sort of bel canto singing style, you know, with all of its portamenti or portamentos. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, but then um, also... Uh, Fisi d'arte is just like a scale that steps down and it's sort of like... So there's something about when you like repeat something over and over and you're like it's not exactly and some senses it's simplifying and some senses it's it's getting like amplifying details so it's a bit hard to sometimes it's a bit of both but sometimes like when you just look at the pitches you end up with something that's almost like what the Shankarian analysis of something would be. This is for Darmstadt, so I know I can. A lot of people will have <laughs> studied Shankarian analysis here, listening yeah, for this. Right. But like, if there's something about like you can get to the essence of the melody in the sense that like, oh, you're like the the important important notes, the like structural notes of the melody become the ones that keep coming back and the ones that you end up doing. So it's kind of you. There's you can get to the essence of like pitch wise, but you're also getting to the essence of like 
if it's I'm focusing on vibrato, then or on 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 I'm I'm I love glisses down. So like that's you often. You do love glisses down. What's, yeah. What's with the down? And this is not a very Darmstadt question, but what's with what's with the downwardness of the downwardness of the gestures that you're often drawn to? I'm thinking of a large house. Yeah. Where you really keep tugging us down repeatedly over and over and over, or even gestures in the viola concerto, where it feels like. You know the cellos, the basses bring us down to, to to the point we feel very rooted in the earth. It's like you're planting our feet on the ground. Mm. Is this a, what, what, what? Is this a conscious thing? Are you are you are you consciously planting us? Um, you know what? It's so funny. I've been asked this so many times in the past because there really have been times when like almost all of my pieces went down, and <laughs> um, and so I've like come up with various glib answers, and some of the glib answers are like, well, I sometimes go up, or like, oh, some of my pieces go up and down, like the cello concerto. Yes. And then, <laughs> about back so goes up. Up. Quite a lot. It goes up. Yeah. yeah. See, so it's like. Um, so I, <laughs> we're, really, we're really getting up something here, but no, yeah. there is something about the, there the, the is something about the downness. What is it? Um, well, okay. I mean, it's actually fun that I just mentioned Shankarian analysis because there was something that when I first, I did like, when I was an undergrad, I did like two weeks of a Shankarian analysis course and then dropped it cause I knew I couldn't get a good grade, but it was enough <laughs> to get the summary of what that is without getting into the details. So excuse my my glossing over but um the idea I, that I, I think glossing is the best thing to do with shaker yeah it's afraid yeah it's about glossing anyway you um the idea that like most melodies um within the realm of music he was looking at um swoop up and then step down that's what Shankarian analysis is. The bass line goes, you know, one, five, one. The, the melody swoops up and steps down. And um, it was quite fun to be a young undergrad and be told that and then notice that that is everywhere. And it's not just classical and romantic era white person music. It's, um, there's a lot of it. It's not, it's not ubiquitous, but it's that you find it many, many, many places. And um, who knows why that is? I'm sure there's people who who have theories about why, but it sounds great to me. I, I always like it. I always want to go downwards. Um, there's something about, if I want to actually try to give you an actual answer and get personal about it, instead of just the glib answers, um, I there's something about going deep into a sort of, um, like almost subconscious kind of direction, like, you know, when you're, let's say you're, you're going to be hypnotized. Um, you might be told to count down from 10 to one, or you might be told to imagine you're stepping down steps. There's something about imagining going downwards, which can connect me anyway to a slightly different mental state, which for some reason resonates particularly well with how I how what what kind of mode my brain is in when it's listening to music so um the idea of going downwards into a dreamlike realm or something is like that's what i feel comfortable doing when i'm sitting in a concert hall like i i like that um it's very similar to the fact that i like repetition repetition is something that i think is a basic for music i mean I, there's a lot of music that doesn't repeat and sometimes that's incredibly beautiful um but it's sort of like I feel like the the basic the base state of most musics of the world involves a great deal of repetition, and we can uh, depart from that if we want. But the basic state is that, um, and I also feel like 
the basic state of melodies going down, um, swooping up and going down. And um, uh, but that's I'm not doing it to say something about the basic state of music. I'm doing it because those are the things that move me, things that repeat. Not everything that repeats, but melody that repeats in particular um, uh, makes me go further into myself. Tones that go downwards make me feel, go further into myself, and I love going into myself while listening to music. Mm. I don't know why. Yeah, and you know, going back to the original question, I suppose, which is, why are you drawn to mm. folk music as sources? Mm. It makes a lot of sense listening to what you were saying because so many folk tunes might share some of the attributes that you're talking about: the repetition, the sense of balance in themselves. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, and um, but at the same time, I'm not trying to find a theory of everything, and I'm not trying to be general about these things. It's just that once I now that I'm interested in things that go down, if I hear something that goes down, I'm like, oh, how does that go down? And like this source material is particularly good for that because it goes down like this. Uh, 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 uh. I'm like, wow, that's so great. Like, <laughs> it's just such a great, you know, it's, um, it's just really fun to like be like, wow, what's that about? And then to read about it and go like, oh yeah, it's this comes from this, this, um, grieving tradition, this sort of idea of communal grieving and, and a kind of, um, celebrating the communalness of this sense of distance from homeland and like there's something so I don't know it's like it's uh Alexis Zumbas anyway presents it in a way that feels like it's open for someone to come in and feel empathy with that and to to resonate with that and um you know, that's not to say it's universal, but um, I feel drawn in in a way where I hopefully can also acknowledge that I don't actually, I will never fully know what what's going on and and I'll never know what it's like to be Alexis Zumbas. I'll never know what it's like to be a, um, um, you know, Epirot Greek. Uh, and uh, I visited the region. It's a marvelous region, but that doesn't mean I own it. You know, like... <laughs> um, but it, but I, I, I want to get into why does this person with that body decide to make that sound with that instrument in exactly that way with exactly that tuning and exactly, you know, I, I love that. Yeah, and the precision is interesting because that was the other thing that really struck me this morning. Looking over your shoulder at the score while we were listening to the rehearsal is um, the simplicity you've arrived at in the score in order to achieve the sound that you make in this concerto and in other of your pieces, which I know is meticulous and extremely thought through um, and the result of many, 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 many months of um, decision-making. Um, but but the, the Crying and perfectionism is crying, what I told you earlier today. <laughs> crying and perfectionism, which is a beautiful <laughs> summation of the creative process. But, um, but the way... You, talk about it it makes everything seem um very obvious somehow you know hmm. of course you do the automatic thing of course you're drawn <laughs> to this particular source material you know the, the the downward motions that that feel so right in your body a lot of it feels like it's very innate and coming from very instinctive responses so talk a tiny bit about the um, how, how that innateness 
that instinct trans translates into the the meticulousness of the process. Oh yeah! Wow. You know what? It's, that's a great question because um, there's kind of a, a disconnect there because uh, um, the sort of obvious parts of it are the easy parts. They're like, oh yeah, I'm going to work with that source material. Obvious choice. Oh, I'm going to sing along to it um, and just do that every day until I find something. Obvious choice. Easy. You know, and then, um, and it's funny because I originally made a uh, a voice piece, you know, uh, me performing live with tape that was on this source material. And I ended up taking one line from the tape part and turning it into the part for, for Lawrence Power. And um, uh, just by transcribing it more or less meticulously, but also giving him a recording of my voice. And so it really is just that thing. And I made that voice thing really easily. And then... I was a crying perfectionist for months, <laughs> turning it into this very simple-looking score. And I still am confused about how that happened. What, what, like, what was I going still, on during those months? Oh, my gosh. So there was, like, so much stress. It was a very difficult time of life, and I don't mind saying this on the record because everybody deals with it, and I think it's good that we talk about these things. And I... I uh, well, actually, this piece had a whole journey. So I was, in theory, writing it for a long time, but was kept being delayed and sort of interrupted by other projects that I that I got out of control of. Like, I had a few projects in a row, all of which um, took significantly longer than I had planned to finish, and um, which is, of course, normal, but unfortunate when it happens with several projects in a row, and then I was just out of control of my time. And then, so I was really stressed, and I had been working on it, but, like, by the time I got to properly working on it, um, there wasn't, I knew there wasn't quite as much time as I needed because I knew even if everything went really well, I know orchestra scores take a while. And, um, so I was stressed and I felt like my life needed to change, but I didn't know how to do it. And then I found a small bit of cancer on my tongue and the, um, the pro it all turned out fine. Don't worry. There's a happy ending to this, but, um, uh, but the, um, process of diagnosing it happened just as I was in the throes of trying to get the orchestra score together in time for what was going to be proms 2022 and is that right 2022 yeah. yeah and um and so um it didn't get ready in time and um we had to actually it was crazy um Lawrence and I, together with the help of my publisher and his manager, um, decided to um, tell the proms that we weren't going to be ready this year. And then, and this had all happened like during the whole diagnosis period of, of cancer. And then, um, let's see, so that was 6 p.m. we decided on a Monday. And then Tuesday, so the next day at 11 a.m., they said, you've got cancer. So it was like, there was like within, was shorter than 24 hours between those two things. Um, and, um, so, uh, so I lumped those together in my head, which is bonkers. It's like very different things. So this is a very long story about why, why, uh, you know, but these things are like, we all have real life things about like our struggle between us and our orchestral score is all of this life stuff. And I, and I think that's probably true of everybody in some way, whether it's struggling with a daily routine or struggling with a fricking computer program or struggling with enough, you know, getting enough money to give ourselves enough time to actually make a score or like all of this, it's all in there between us and our, and especially orchestral scores. Cause they're so, um, 
labor intensive. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, anyway, that got canceled and it got postponed. And then I had, well, then I had actual surgery and it was like a big, there was a, it was a, there was a whole other thing which took me out of commission for um, strangely about three months. Um, not so strangely, that's just what it takes. Uh, it all turned out really well. It was like super, super small cancer and it actually uh, it was great. I spoke like a French duck for a couple of months, uh, but it all turned out very well. And I'm very proud of how all that went. And I'm very, very relieved. And the NHS is amazing. Um, but um, why am I telling you all of this? Well, I'm then, asking about process. I, I, yeah, you know, listening to you talking about this um, makes me think of the chronology, I suppose, because you're saying you were finishing the orchestral score at the point of diagnosis, at which point you had to pause. But mm. how much do you hear all of what you're just describing? This just huge life event and experience Mm. um how much do you hear in the music that was already well underway this is funny because then i think it came out in the perfectionism because then i had basically all of september october november december to finish the score which i had been almost finished and so and i still don't really understand how it took that long but by the time i got to the end of those four months i was still struggling to finish it and i think there's something about um you know when a piece finally works sometimes it has been very complicated and you've just worked it over and over and over until it becomes simple and um i often find that especially with things that are based on transcription for some reason um and when the the cadenza which we haven't spoken about yet um is very close it, it's i made a very close transcription of the original source material and then i it was not singing that transformed it i just use sort of compositional techniques to transform it there's lots of well i've 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 transformed it through instrumental style basically the 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 soloist is doing all sorts of stuff with harmonics and different things but the rhythm and the harmonic harmonic movement is the source material um and uh that took an immense amount of going over and going over and going over until it could look simple on the page so that it could be re-embodied in a way that actually made musical sense. Um, so it's a very labor-intensive process. And also, even though solo string writing is kind of my home base, there was a lot of stuff I hadn't done before and I needed to work on it, you know, with a viol- violist in the room um, um, over and over and over again and then rewrite it and rewrite it. And so, um, I, yeah, some pieces just take forever to get to a simple state. And some pieces don't. Some people's pieces are really simple. And but it also feels like, you know, whatever this journey was to get to the point where we are now, it, it almost feels right. I mean, you said, going back to the original um, quote, the, the, the writing of Simone Weil, and the, the notions of human, human existence being fragile and dangers that we are exposed to and trembling. I mean, these are, these are elements that come through in so many of your pieces, but my goodness they are right for now you know what there's a nice thing about the trembling with this piece which also has to do with my friend Matt Marble there was a time when I was getting quite close to finishing it and I was like I still feel a little bit lost in it even though it's very similar to the the version we have now and um and so I just contacted my friend Matt who I knew I knew the piece was going to be in part dedicated to him he didn't know but I I uh I asked him I said what do you hear in Alexa Zumbas and he said uh, he hears it like flickering like a flame, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh yeah, it's the flickering. That's what I love about it." And and then I went back and I added all of this um, like flickering in the orchestration. So and for me at that moment the piece came alive. It's when I added the harp 
and the marimba. It's when I added the tremolos and the winds. And then it was like, oh, this is what's connecting with, with what Lawrence is doing. And it, it was sort of, so it was really nice that that came out of a personal connection and somebody saying, I mean, of course I heard the flickering in it, but it was so really so wonderful when somebody named it. And then I could just sort of, it unlocked something for me. It was really lovely. Oh, gorgeous. Flickering, yeah, and I'm hearing the, the Bode vibraphone with this beautiful little flicker in the sound. I don't want to give it all away. Well, I do want to give it all away because I would encourage anybody to go and listen to this piece and, of course, everything else that Cassandra has written that is available to get, wrap your ears around. Um, I cannot recommend it enough. I mean, it's some of the most deeply moving, grounded music that I think exists. Um, Cassandra, thank you so much for talking to me about it um, and yeah, I hope the rest of the week goes absolutely brilliantly and that this performance and all the performances to come live up to, uh, to, to, to what this piece deserves. Thank you very much, Kate.